Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Word of Life Chapel. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, a couple of announcements to share with you uh, before we begin our service, and then we're going to open up with some praise this morning, singing to our Lord and Savior. Um, the first announcement is that the Awana Grand Prix is this Thursday. Thursday. I just want to see who was listening. It's this Wednesday. It's this Wednesday. <laughs> All right, this Wednesday at 6.30. There is no meal at 6 o'clock, okay? So please make sure that you're here at 6.30. If your car is coming, if you're bringing a car, I'd come just a little bit earlier this week. Um, also, the church youth group is having a spaghetti dinner fundraiser on Saturday, February 25th from 5 to 7. And there's no cost, but donations are greatly appreciated, and they will go towards teen events. Uh, the teens will be preparing and serving a delicious meal. We encourage you to come out and uh, come out for that. Also, we want to welcome Brian Wilbur and his family this morning. Uh, we're so glad that you guys could be with us. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we are so thankful to be in your presence this morning. We're thankful to gather together with the church, with the body of Christ. Lord, we are here for you, and we ask that you just use this morning to speak truth into our lives. Father, break down any walls, any barriers, or any chains that we've brought in with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing? Amen. i 
Yeah. 
wish I could walk
precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Counselor.
has said, by his wounds uh, we are healed. You, of course, have in front of you the uh, prayer ministry list, and I would um, ask you to continue to pray for those like Ivan, who's able to be with us this morning after having rotator cuff surgery, Dorothea and Sarah, uh, knee, hip uh, surgeries, and the list goes on. But I have a special um, request this morning. Many of you probably know that this past Wednesday on Peter's Mountain, Wednesday afternoon, a young man, Jonathan Leader, uh, 35 years of age, uh, was in a fatal accident. Uh, he lives right behind me. Uh, he, George and Teresa Leader are my neighbors. And so I, I knew them very well uh, and knew John as I would see him almost every day, if not every other day, come out into the yard with his little black dog who also uh, was killed in that same accident. We need to pray for the leader family. A very, very difficult time right now for them. And so we need to come uh, before the Lord. The Bible says, as you saw at the end of Isaiah, by his wounds we are healed. God is able to bring comfort. God is able to give grace and mercy in times such as these. And so I want to pray uh, that way this morning. Father, as we pause before you, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to mankind, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, Lord, that healing includes the healing of the soul of man. Father, we are a depraved people. We, like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned our own way. But, Father, you have laid the iniquity of all of us on the shoulders of Jesus. And by his stripes and by his wounds, Father, we are healed. Father, we certainly ask that you might bring to, to each of us that salvation, which is found in Jesus alone. If there is one, perchance, that has never trusted Christ, that, Lord, this might be that day when they change from darkness to light. But, Father, you've also promised to heal by giving peace and comfort and grace. And Father, as we think of this family, George and Teresa, who have lost a son, Father, they need healing. They need strength. Lord, they need you right now in their lives. Father, we know that you're able to bring a peace that does transcend all understanding. We know that you're able to give grace in times of need. And that is our request as we come and pause before you this morning, that this neighbor of ours, as we here in this church, Lord, are just a few yards away, they are our neighbors, all of our neighbors. 
we pray for them. We pray for healing. And Father, as they anticipate the funeral on Friday, I pray that your name might be honored and glorified. So touch this family, I pray. Now, Father, we are thankful that you have brought to us um, Brian and Nicole and their family. Uh, it's an exciting day to have them back. Uh, Father, as one of our own, who you have called so far away. And we are thankful, Lord, that you are using Brian in the pulpit, as you will this morning. Uh, we certainly ask that uh, you might continue to use him and his family uh, to reach souls for Jesus Christ. Use him to bring change in the lives of people uh, through the word of God. For we know that it is not us, it is your word that changes the lives of people. So use him greatly, fill him with your spirit as he stands behind the pulpit and proclaims your word. And we're thankful once again that you have allowed them to come and join us. You're a great, you're an awesome God. And Father, we thank you that you have come this day to be with us. For when we come together as your body, Father, you're here with us as well. So use this time. Be honored and be glorified in all the things we do and say. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God, man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Page number 67, Fairest Lord Jesus. Let's sing this together.
page 88, I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. Let's stand together. Let's sing all three stanzas. It is a great privilege to have uh, Brian Wilbert and Nicole and their family back with us. Uh, I do say back uh, because uh, he was one of our own and went through the uh, youth program. And after the teenage years, uh, he was very instrumental in uh, forming a 20s plus group. Uh, he, I believe, Guy Ridge, young Guy Ridge, was part of that and others in the church. But then God, for some reason, uh, led him away from us, I say for some reason, you know, you hate to lose, although I know Alaska gained, uh, called him to Alaska with Victory Ministries, and uh, we support Victory to this day under the leadership of Brian Headings, but then God called him into the pastorate, and uh, what a great place to be, and uh, we're just excited that you've come back. And it's exciting to know that God is using you all the way up there. So, Brian, God bless you. Again, great to Thank have you, you with us. Um, maybe you want to introduce your wife? Yeah, my, my hot bride, Nicole. <laughs> I'll leave that alone. <laughs> God's entrusted us to, to three sons so far, Mason, Dawson, and Carson. So they're part of our, our life and active as well. It's been going well in Alaska, uh, pastoring now for three years there in that community since 2009. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the learning curve isn't as steep anymore. And so where Nicole and I are spending the bulk of our time is building relationships with people uh, that the Word of God would have a, a greater impact in their life. Personally, um, where I've been growing a lot and, and meditating um, deals with worldviews. And worldviews, you could say it this way, are made up of like puzzles. 
And those puzzle pieces don't always match up sometimes. Certain worldviews, they, uh, they borrow from other worldviews. And their picture that they make, it, it does not make a picture. It does not uh, answer the problems that we see in our world. But Christianity, Christianity, you see, is the worldview of reality. When we look at the world, Christianity answers best what we see, what we experience. And so Christianity is the worldview of reality. So if, you're, if that confuses you, if you're a non-Christian this morning, let me just communicate that to you. You go seek. You go seek uh, which worldview, which religion is going to match what you witness uh, when you look out at the world. And I believe you will find that the Word of God, the Bible, is the one that answers those tough questions. And uh, it'll lead you, lead you to God our Savior. Where I'm excited to share with you this morning Maybe more on this trip than any trip I've come on, I, I see the need um, for you, you as Christians, you who are the church, Holy Spirit and dwelled people, uh, to be interacting with your neighbors, be interacting with your coworkers, be interacting with your, your classmates, because people are hurting, and people need the good news of the gospel. They need to know how to live life that is truly life. And so I want to equip you to do that this morning. Um, this, this message is designed that it would enable you to engage deeper with the culture that God has you in, wherever that is, your workplace, in your homes, with your children, with your spouse, with your family, wherever he has you. We live in a post-Christian culture. The church itself, uh, universal, and especially in America, we're having a, a hard time adjusting. It used to be that the moral framework of society matched the scriptures, and it's no longer true. And so Christians can no longer just default to what the laws of the land are, because the laws of the land are changing. We're having a hard time with that. Uh, recently, the book came out called The Great Evangelical Recession. Great Evangelical Recession. It's by John S. Dickerson. He's a researcher, and he took all the research from all the different polling, Christian polling organizations, and really dug down deep to see if there was any consistencies. And I can tell you, it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look great. We're having a hard time adjusting to this post-Christian culture. Our culture itself, you, you look at the last election cycle, and how divisive things have been. And maybe that's not new, but the way they've been handled, it's not healthy for a nation. Um, Pennsylvania, you guys are making headlines. Um, do, you, do you know the name Kermit Gonzel? Mm. If you're not familiar with that name, you need to go on moodyradio.com and you go to Janet Parshall's page, and, and you, you put that name in there, Kermit Gonzel. Um, he, he basically, in Philadelphia, he's been different places, but recently in Philadelphia, he is basically a mass murderer disguised as an abortion doctor. Horrors. Horrors in our culture. So today, I want to give you four, four attitudes, okay, four attitudes, four perspectives to engage the culture. 
you have your Bibles, you just open them to 1 Peter. You're going to feel like it's sword drills. If you can't keep up, that's fine. The, the scripture, uh, like Gary was saying in Sunday school this morning, is what we need. And so we're going to lead a lot of scripture. I don't have to explain it. It's straightforward. I want to walk you through 1 Peter. Now you can follow on the screen behind me. You can grab a piece of paper, write it down, and uh, just, read, just read 1 Peter this week. That it would equip you with who God has you with. This uh, message is encouraged by a pastor's conference that I went to at Moody and Chip Ingram. He gave this to the pastors to go back to churches to preach. And so um, there's two specific words that I've chosen. Did you notice that it's thriving, just not surviving? We're not called just to survive. We're called to thrive. And it's not disengaging, it's not removing from the culture. Jesus didn't tell his disciples to do that. And when he prayed, he prayed, don't take them away, rather sustain. And so we need to engage our cultures. Lord, I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the word of God in our hearts, in our minds, in the depths of our soul. That there would be conviction to live out our faith among those that we walk, that we talk with. Wherever you have us, Lord, because you need us. You want to use us. And Lord, how it is a privilege to be used of you. Lord, do your work now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. To set this up, I want to give you a history lesson. Um, this, this history lesson is designed to make this part of the sermon powerful. Okay, and we're going to wrap up the history lesson at the end, but I want to just start out with this. In the first century, you need to know that Christians were public enemy number one. If you want a reference for that, you turn to Acts 28, 22, and you just read that. You will see that. Now, why were they public enemy number one? Well, Christians were actually considered atheists back then. They were considered atheists because they weren't pluralistic. They did not worship the emperor. And so they were considered atheists. Um, they destroyed the economy. They destroyed the economy because they did not buy idols. And so the markets were not happy with them. They also were accused, they were slandered of burning down Rome. Okay? So they are public enemy number one. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? Uh, hey, let me familiarize you. Narrow-minded, bigoted Christians... Your absolute morality, full of intolerance, trying to conform everyone to your way, taking over the world, wanting Jesus in the White House. Christians, public enemy number one. But here's what happened. In the third century, in the third century, Christianity became the state religion. From public enemy number one to the state religion. What happened? What happened? What did God have his people do? What did God have written in his word that drove people to live such a way to have that result from the first to the third century? So we're going to go to 1 Peter now. Four thriving attitudes to engage his culture. You're going to see this. The first question for you this morning is, where's your hope? Where is your hope? Is it in the American dream? Is it there is in health and wealth. Is that it? This morning I want to restore your hope. Because the first thriving attitude to engage the culture is that we have a living hope. 
a living hope in heaven. It's not a wish. It is a reality. Our living hope drives us. If that doesn't excite you, um, you probably have sort of this Philadelphia cream cheese commercial in your mind. All right? If that's, if that's your perspective of heaven, you just pick up some of Randy Alcorn's material and you just start reading and you will be thrilled, thrilled about the story and reality of heaven. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we see our hope secured. It says, Praise, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It is secure. And where is it? This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. First century Christians were being put to death. They were put to death for their faith. This kind of hope allowed them to sacrifice their earthly bodies. That's the same drive that allows Christians to sacrifice their bodies all around this world. In America, the church isn't being persecuted to death just yet. We have our persecutions, but that's the driving motivation. We know there's life after this life, and so we have to gear up. We have to gear up. You go do a fishing trip, you go do a hunting trip, you go do a job... You got to gear up with the right tools. Got to have the right stuff to do the job. Verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. I like the way the King James words. This may be the way you have, a, have it memorized. It's uh, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, the picture is the Roman soldier. He takes his skirt and he tucks it in his belt. He's got to have free moving legs. He, got, he has to be ready. This is a mind of action, an attitude of action here. It goes on, it says, set your hope on what? Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Have that mindset. Be prepared. Rick Warren says this. Rick Warren, he says, to make the best use of your life, you must never forget two truths. Two truths. The first one, compared with eternity, life is extremely brief. Second, earth is only a temporary residence. Perspective, perspective to enable you to walk a certain way. And so we engage the culture with a hope. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts... Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to whom? Everyone who asks you to give the reason for what? The hope you have. And notice he gives us instruction how to do it. But do this with gentleness and respect. Our culture needs that message. Randy Alcorn, he says this, he says, Nothing is more often misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. 
We think what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen television, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii, you add Alaska to it, whatever you think you want. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing less than satisfy. So restore your hope this morning. Restore your hope in the attitude that engages the culture that you have a heaven to go to. Have a vision for bigger than just your life this morning. That you can be like the first century Christians, able to give your life if God asks. That's the first one. The second one is this. The second one to engage your culture really deals with resetting your expectation. Okay, resetting your expectation. Maybe this hasn't been your experience yet, but Christian persecution in America has been happening. John S. Dickerson, he gives a few, and these are since 2013, so they're rather recent here. Okay? A Fortune 500 okay, Firefox CEO tech guy was forced out of the company. Why? Because of his beliefs. He got pushed out because of his Christian beliefs. A Christian was jailed. Remember this one was jailed because they refused to sign a same-sex marriage license. Persecution. And just not out there, but within Christian circles, it's been happening. McClurklin Jr., who is an African-American reverend, he was barred from singing at the anniversary of Martin Luther King, who was an African-American reverend, because of his life story. His life story is that God freed him from a homosexual lifestyle. He wasn't allowed to. Louis Giglio, he was scheduled to pray at the 2014 presidential inauguration and was later pressured not even to come because of his moral beliefs. So it's here. If you're not experiencing, it's knocking on your doorstep. All right? Here it is. I need to reset your expectation in the morning because suffering, suffering is normal. It is normal. Don't let it surprise you. It is normal. And so I want to teach you to suffer well. To reset your expectation on this, I've just got six bullet points that we'll run through. First off, I'm saying it's normal. Okay, so here, here's the verse on the fact that it's normal. And don't be surprised is the message when you, when you suffer. Don't be surprised by it. Chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But that's how we act. We're surprised when that happens. We ought not be. The scripture says, do not be surprised. Suffering is also temporary. It's temporary. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, a little while, it is temporary, you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. This is normal. Suffering is rewarded. It's rewarded. Chapter 2, verse 19. For it brings favor if mindful of God's will, someone endures grief for suffering unjustly. It is rewarded. 
You see a little bit of it in this verse. Did you know that suffering is a calling? It is a calling. Chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So far, it is normal. It is temporary. It is rewarded. It is a calling. And now I'm going to show you it is commanded. It is commanded. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, the same thinking, the same attitude, the same purpose, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for what? But for God's will. For God's will. It is normal. It is temporary. It is rewarded. It is a calling. It is commanded. And so we need to suffer well. Suffer well. People watch this in Christians' lives. They watch to see how you suffer. They want to know if what you have makes any difference that's what they want to know. And they don't ask you, where's your hope if you suffer well? Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Adjust your expectations on suffering. Suffering is normal. God uses it in your life, and he's going to use it in other people's lives as we suffer well. We have an elder a number of months ago went in for um, surgery of his brain. Walking and talking, Doug was before he went in. Doug came out, Doug was in a wheelchair. He gets asked all the time, because what they witness is that Doug's faith has helped him to suffer well. And so he gets asked where his hope is. And he tells them where his hope is. That's what people are watching. They're watching to see how you suffer. So suffer well. I realize that those sufferings, they deal with persecution. I want to talk to you now about maybe more of physical sufferings, okay, physical sufferings, just, just for a minute. Job, he was a man that lost children. Some of you know what that's like. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The name of the Lord be praised. Talk about a sovereign view of God. Rick Warren said this. This is, this is all coming from purpose-driven life. You guys did this. God has a purpose behind every problem. He uses circumstances to develop our character. In fact, he depends more on circumstances to make us like Jesus than he depends on us reading the Bible. The reason is obvious. You face circumstances 24 hours a day. Non-Christians face circumstances 24 hours a day. It's common to mankind. Joseph, 
Remember his roller coaster of life? He's talking to his brothers here, and he says, You plant evil against me, even evil. You plant evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Oh, just to see a glimpse of what God would do with our suffering, that we could see like Joseph saw what God was doing with it. Um, John Piper, he's come out with a book. It's been out. It's free. It's totally free. It's called Don't Waste Your Cancer. You can plug anything you want into cancer. He had cancer, so he writes from that perspective. Whatever you're dealing with physically, mentally, you could pick up this book and you just replace, don't waste whatever it is that you're suffering through. A great read, a great way to learn how to suffer well because we know what it says in Romans 8, 28, don't we? We know what it says. You probably know it by heart. We know that all things God works for the good of those who, who? For those who love him. This is written to you. You who, who have trusted him, who, have, who love him. For you he works it out. Who have been called according to his purposes. What is that purpose? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what is good. That's what's good. It may not be the release of your suffering, it is the conforming to his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Better to be known as Jesus' brother and sister all of your life and suffer than to not know him. Corey Ten Boom suffered in a Nazi death camp. Can you imagine witnessing that? Here's what was said. If you look at the world, you will be distressed. If you look within, you will be depressed. But if you look to Christ, you will be at rest. Have that perspective about you when you suffer. And suffer well because suffering, don't let it surprise you. It's normal. It's normal. Uh, I had a friend tell me he wasn't going to be able to make it this morning. I gave it to him real simple. I said, here's the message. Suffering's normal. Get over it. It's part of life. Suffer well. It makes all the difference. God can use that greatly. Third thriving attitude. We need to redefine what the problem is. Often we think that the problems are things like environmental concerns or it's sexual immorality. Think about the wildfire of transgender bathrooms that, that, that was created or it's a political situation. That those are the problems, but they're not. Those aren't the problems. Those are just symptoms of the problem. You see, America, America is in a tailspin, a philosophical tailspin, because we no longer have truth. Truth is open to the culture's interpretation now. And so though you see the symptoms and you're frustrated with those symptoms, the diagnosis should break our hearts because it's a spiritual disease, you see. That's the problem. Now, the good news is that we have the antidote to this. We believe that truth is absolute, John 17, 17. We believe that there is a final authority. You look at 2 Timothy 3, 16. You see, God defines truth, and his truth is found in the Bible. Yet, what's scary is that even in supposed Christian churches, God's word has been so marginalized with poor hermeneutics, making even God's truth irrelevant. 
open to interpretation. And so Christians that are going to churches are showing the same symptoms as the culture, just as confused about the issues of the day. What we need to do is redefine the problem, stop looking at the symptoms, stop pointing our fingers out, and start turning around. Because we have the antidote. And we're struggling with truth just as much as they are. The third thriving attitude that engages the culture is that holy living practices kindness. Holy living, it practices kindness. What that's going to do is it's going to silence our critics. Just like they watch you suffer. When you practice kindness, it silences the critics out there. It's hard to hate a nice person, isn't it? The church sort of defaults to a a defensive nature, a defensive position. And there's times to do that, but, but what First Peter does, it gives a loving offense. It gives a loving offense that encourages the culture, and it engages right where the root of the problem is. You see, loving offense, it begins with the, the stance, you could say. It's, it's, it's a stance, to be ready, sort of like, you know, gird up your loins. It's a stance, and that stance is actually, it ain't the fighting position. It's this. It's a healthy, reverent fear of God. A healthy, reverent fear of God. First Peter 2.17 says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. This isn't a fear that causes you to, to run out of the room. It's a healthy respect for it. It's a, it's a reverence. And it ends honor the emperor. You see, we need to have the attitude that, that we have the highest reverence for him, the, the greatest fear for him. More than what the emperor. We're to submit. I want to talk about that. But we've got to have that in the right position. We've got to have that stance. This morning, you may have to rebounce your scales a little bit. We're going to do this. Chapter 3, verse 14 says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. Do not fear what they fear. Don't fear what the culture fears above godly living. Don't do that. Rebounce your scales this morning, okay? Have, here's the way it needs to be. If, if this is a healthy fear for God and this is fear of culture, here's how you rebounce your scales with a Christian. Got it? If you get that, you'll live rightly. You'll practice kindness. You'll live a holy life. Loving offense begins with the stance of reference for God, making ready the Christian for the action now that comes that practices kindness. Doesn't think about it, it practices it because it silences our critics. 1 Peter 2.12 Live such godly lives among the pagans. By the way, they have a reason for an unholy life. Okay? Expect pagans to live pagans. That's normal for them. 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, your public enemy number one, that they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. You practice kindness with your critics, it actually has redemptive qualities that they might glorify God. You look at Romans 2, 4, it says the same thing. You practicing kindness can have that effect on people. 1 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. You got to go after it. Don't just be kind. Actively find practical ways to, to be kind, to, to practice your offense. That's what you need to be doing. It'll silence the critic. I want to lay chapel. You need to, you need to be asking yourselves, how can we practice kindness? Corporately, yes, but individually, individually where God has you. Hunt. Hunt for God's opportunity in your life to practice kindness someone. Right here in Halifax, with what he's working, in your schools, at your jobs, within your home, practice kindness. You see, an attitude of holy living practices kindness and it engages the culture. That's why number three is that holy living practices kindness. It silences our critics. Fourth. The fourth thriving attitude that engages our culture is really to follow Jesus' example. I've got four for you. Okay, I sort of assume Christians are going to follow Jesus' example, WWJD, you know, we got that down. I'm going to give you four. One's very intentional. It's the last one. Okay, so we're going to roll through and get to the last one here. The first one is this. The first one in Jesus' example might even be the hardest one to do. It is to submit to authorities. You don't like submission and you don't like authorities, right? Right from the womb. I want to be in control. You think about Jesus in the garden. He's being arrested. And he's not being arrested for anything he'd done wrong. It's unjust. He even submitted himself to unjust authority. That's heavy. It's heavy. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14 say this. Submit yourselves. For the Lord's sake, a vision bigger than yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to an emperor as to supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. That has a powerful witness in a culture. The second one is this. The second one is to love your enemies. All right? Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5, 44, to, to love your enemies. It mentions in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Love others. Love your enemies. Third, Jesus' example of humility. Uh, you have the... Paul writes about the mind of Christ in the book of Philippians. This is very, very similar, okay? 1 Peter 5, 6 says this. Humble yourselves, therefore. Love this imagery. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up 
due time. You humbling yourself allows God to do his work. Humble yourself. So we've got submission to authorities. We've got loving our enemies. We've got the humility factor. And now the biggest thing I want you to, to know is to what do I do with my anxiety? Even if you do the first three, even if you stop getting frustrated with the symptoms, there's still very good biblical reason to have concerns. And if you don't know what to do with your anxieties, what to do with your worries, you're going to get derailed in your effort to engage the culture. It doesn't take much to erase all the work you've done. So I don't want to get you derailed. I want you to know what to do with your anxieties, with your worries. You look at it this way. This applies to all of life, okay? Worry, I have my wallet. It's an expense. That's what worry is. Prayer, prayer is an investment. It's an investment, okay? Have that per perspective. Worry, worry brings sin. It brings sins because it, it searches for fulfillment in other areas than being totally secure in where God has you with what God has you. Suffering through what God has you. But prayer, it brings comfort. And so the fourth one is that Jesus' example in casting your cares. Again, you go back to the garden and you see God the Son praying to God the Father, casting his cares done so rightly. 1 Peter 5, 7 says it this way, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I like those balloons. If I was a singer, I'd start belting out, let it go, let it go, right? Driving a school bus the other day, the kids were singing that. It was great for a minute. I know nothing about the movie. I don't have any daughters. <laughs> let it go. Let God take your anxieties. Let them rise. Let them rise. We've got to know what to do with your anxieties, or you'll get derailed. You'll get derailed in your effort to engage the culture to help them through this life. So know what to do with your anxieties. Cast your cares on God. Now, what did happen? What did happen from the first century to that third century? What, what took place? What made it so that Christians went from public enemy number one, so familiar today, to Christianity being a state religion? What did those Christians do? Well, Rodney Starks, he, he writes a book about it. I'm just going to give you the cliff notes. Three things specifically that Christians did during this time that really changed the culture of the world. First off, God initiated suffering. There were plagues. And what those plagues did was those plagues caused the rich and powerful to flee away from the cities up into the mountain country. They ran. The people you think have the best ability to help, they, they fled. They left. But the Christians, they stayed in the cities. And you know what they did? Because those, they had those attitudes, they had a secure hope, they were able to take care of the people there that struggling with the plague. 
They helped them suffer through their death of the plague. Many of the Christians dying themselves because they gave their life to help another. And after all the sickness was gone, guess who was left in the cities? Who was left in the cities were Christians, people that converted to Christianity, or people that had such loving kindness practiced to them, people that witnessed a living hope through Christians that suffered, that they were friendly to the faith. That's what happened. The rich people fled, the Christians stayed, they ministered, some of them dying themselves because they had this attitude and all who was left was either people that were Christians or were friendly towards Christianity because they had seen faith lived out in their time of struggle. They could do that because their hope was in heaven, because they hadn't basically expect suffering to come in their lives. They knew the importance of practicing kindness, and they followed Jesus' example and trusted their God in times of anxiety. I'm going to show you now a verse that has a message. It, it tells us who we are and what our message is. It hasn't changed for a very long time. This was their mantra, too. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them, he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Who are we? We are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ. And what is our message? Our message is be reconciled to God. That's what their message was, and that's what our message is today. And these four thriving attitudes set you up for success in engaging your culture to preach that message to them, to be the antidote to their suffering, to give them life that is truly life. You see, I believe we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity for great revival in our nation, a great revival in our churches, that our culture would at least have a respect for God. Because if there is no respect for God, no, no absolute truth, then anything is permissible. Evil will be rampant, worse than it is today. You think it's bad, it's not even close to bad. When you look at Noah's day, it can get a lot worse. You see, we've got, we've got a message that is better than a cure for cancer. Cure for cancer heals the body. Be reconciled to God cures the soul. It is the antidote for hell. That is what our people need. They need that redeemer that you saw on the screen. That's who they need. Personally, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm actually really excited. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that the people that are living today, they just want to be straight-faced. They're not, they're not looking for an act. They're not looking to put on a show. Either they're in or they're out. Christianity is not popular enough just to be a club. But we have an opportunity to make true, genuine disciples in this atmosphere. So I'm excited 
about that. And we have to remember God's plan, God's plan still works. God's plan is that he first loved you, and so now you love him. And if you love him, then you love your neighbor. And what happens then is that your neighbor could end up loving God. And that cycle goes on and on. And that's what Halifax needs. That's what your coworker needs. That's what your friend, your family member, your son and daughter need. They need that love for God. They need that message of be reconciled to him. So I want to pray that way as we close. Um, if you'd stand with me as we, as we close in prayer, and I think we're going to sing a hymn this morning. We've been talking about engaging the culture. You think about the culture that God has you right in. Uh, many of you, just, just think about your day. Think about how many hours a day you spend doing certain things. And think about your week. Where's your time investment? That really defines where God has you. Think about your time. He gives you 24 hours a day. How do you spend all those hours? Where does God have you in that time? And where is God asking you to engage the culture for him, the culture that he has you in? Think about that, and let's, let's pray that God would use you. Let's pray that God would use these, these attitudes to help you thrive in engaging right where God has you. Father, Lord, thank you for the book of 1 Peter. Lord, thank you for the example of the first century Christians living in such a way that, that changed the world in that time. Lord, we see what's going on in our nation. We see what's going on in our culture. We see what's going on in the church and in our own lives. And Lord, this, this is a message that we need. This is a message that we need to give. Lord, I pray that these thriving attitudes would, would allow that, would, would equip us this morning to go out, to, to minister to Halifax, to minister to Millersburg, to Elizabethville, to Susquehanna, to Northern Upper Dauphin County, Lord, wherever you have us, wherever you have us spending our time, at our jobs, on the phones doing customer service, in our schools, rubbing shoulders at community activities, Lord, the students in their classes, Lord, that we would engage people that are desperate, desperately seeking for truth, looking and observing how People suffer, wondering if the faith is real. Lord, may you help us show them Christianity is the worldview of reality. Anything else is blindedness of the devil. Lord, that they would see too. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would indwell them. Lord, I pray this morning, you would guide each one here and what you have for them this week. That as they go, they would, they would see even the interruptions of the day as your invitation to practice kindness and to reveal that message, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Stay standing and turn with me to page 384. I believe a very fitting um, hymn to close our... Uh, morning all for jesus all for jesus all my beings ransom powers let's sing this together
I'm ready. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransom powers, all my thoughts and words, his doings, all my days and all my hours. Let my hands perform his bidding, let my feet run in his ways. Let my eyes see Jesus only, my lips speak forth his praise. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So enchain my spirit, looking at the crucified. Oh, what wonder, how amazing, Jesus glorious. Deigns to come, his beloved, lets me rest neath his wings. Father, we do thank you this morning that you have given to us uh, a message, the message that brings about changed lives. We thank you, Father, for this morning, for the opening of this little letter, a letter, Lord, in which Peter has written, not just long ago, but, Father, for us as well. May we take these truths to heart. We thank you, Father, for using Brian once again to proclaim your word, to open forth the bread of life. Now, Father, as we go from this place, we go as a church that has been gathered together, but we scatter. We scatter into our culture. We scatter into our homes and workplaces and schools. Father, I pray that we would live in such a way that people would ask us, why? Why the hope that lies within you? Use us greatly, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Six, above all, the distractions in this world. Oh, yo. 